There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome to the Delicious Podcast with me, Jimmy Smith. This week, it's the Bumper Magazine-style episode with Stephen Lamb of River Cottage, the winner of this year's Jane Grigson Trust Award for Best New Food Writer, Dan Saladino, and How to Be a Nomadic Chef. Plus, we meet the woman who left a life of high finance to make kefir, the wine producer who's winning awards for leaving the least impact on the planet, and Sophie from the food team with 25 seconds on Marmite. But first, delicious editor Karen Barnes on the skills you can learn in the magazine. But I had to ask why she had six bottles of gin on her desk. I know, it looks like I have a problem. I, I certainly will do soon. Um, I haven't tasted them all yet, or that many of them yet, but the one I, I'm looking at that I'm really interested by is a limited edition made by Chapeldown, who obviously are famous mostly for their sparkling wines, and they also do very good Bacchus as well. Um, but this is a new gin that's made with the skins uh, from Pinot Noir. So it's, uh, I suppose you could say it's a byproduct of their fizz making, and I think this is a very interesting take. So I'm looking forward to trying that. They, they did a limited edition Bacchus gin last year, which very good. So this is uh, in the same vein. It comes in a pink bottle, and the gin is vaguely pink. So we will see. Um, but apart from that, I wanted to mention the fact that delicious is so known for its recipe content and features and uh, a rounded approach to food but i'm not sure that we always give the message strongly enough that we are very much about skills and one of the things that sets us apart is that we always try to when there's a technique that's unusual or an ingredient that's unusual we explain where it comes from how to do it um, where to buy things so that it makes it as easy as possible to use our recipes and we have a whole section in the magazine called delicious kitchen where the whole thing is focused on take I hate this phrase but taking your uh, cooking to the next level so that you understand the techniques behind what you're doing which helps with that knowledge to make you a better cook that's what it's all about so um, this month we've got a a slightly extended section in our Easter issue but we also have a a real a feature that's all about perfecting uh, the roast potato and we've tested all these different methods of cooking to see if the classic parboil hot fat method is the best and um, buying the April issue is the way to find out but it's something we want to do more of where we look at different methods of cooking and baking and just see you know is the traditional way the best are there new ways that are different and better does granny know best do the modern cooks know best I think it's a good one 
Now, when I popped down to River Cottage for that fabulous beach barbecue with Gil Miller a few weeks back, I couldn't leave without a recipe that tastes like home for fellow flag bearer and River Cottage tutor, Stephen Lamb. I asked him if it would involve his signature charcuterie and artisanal cheese. You, you were about to say ham and cheese, weren't you? I was about to say ham and cheese. Those days have gone. You've been river cottaged, haven't you? I have, thoroughly. And is that what you teach, the sort of the ethos of river cottage? Yeah, well, the ethos runs through everything that we do. So certainly through the courses, and the ethos, if people aren't aware, it's very simple. It's about sustainability, it's about high welfare, it's about good produce, good producers, things that are uh, local and seasonal, uh, and generally a good food experience, which obviously has an impact along that whole chain. Teaching is simple because we use uh, brilliant products, Uh, The methods that I teach are based in tradition, really, kind of before cooking was even invented. So that's where my speciality is. I used to struggle finding where my niche was, but it's before cooking, you know, before expensive kit and uh, fancy kitchens. Uh, And so in a way... Back to the land stuff. Back to the land stuff, back to, you know, uh, the good life. Yeah. And it has changed my life. I don't come from a very auspicious foodie family background. Mm. Because when I said, can you do me a taste like home recipe, you said not on your Nelly. They would have been, uh, let's do mother's uh, liver (laughs) when she starts cooking on a Tuesday, ready for a Friday. Should we do that recipe? (laughs) That uh, That would be the sort of background. But what I really like about river cottage are the kind of processes the methods the engagement in just more than cooking and i would say wouldn't i but the thing that really changed my view was being able to take really good fresh produce and it was pork for me and being able to turn it into bacon and pancetta and derivatives of pork which take time it's that kind of antithesis of fast food those methods and uh, the techniques that I learnt whilst I was here uh, really changed my outlook and the recipe that I would do uh, for you if we were going to do that is that we would have some home cured bacon and I would cook that with some really spankingly fresh pig's liver as a sort of nod towards Jean uh, and hopefully with a little bit more finesse. But tell us about that finesse, what would you do? So with the process um, I would uh, delight in having a conversation with a good butcher and really trying to find out provenance of a piece of pork belly and that piece of pork belly would have to be from a high welfare rare breed pig just because it has quality running through it even in its natural state and then with a little bit of salt uh, a little bit of supporting ingredients very little kit uh, salt sugar bay crap black pepper if you like um, and maybe uh, a little bit of uh, additional sweetener just to give it flavor and there's a bit of science and there's a bit of sorcery behind that you know, uh, a few simple rules get you across the finishing line of making something really authentic uh, and brilliant. And bacon, by the way, is dead easy. It's child's play, but it alters that whole dimension of the bacon that you buy in the shop and the one that you make for yourself is completely different. Now, I'm going to confess something here. I've never made my own bacon. And I would say that most people listening to this podcast would be more like me than like you yeah that's a guarantee would you encourage me to make my own bacon or would you take me back to that butcher 
Well, either. I think it's really good to support a good butcher. He or she is really working in a difficult trade and one that is being kind of really suppressed. Um, however, if you buy uh, meat, fresh meat from that butcher, it's dead easy to do it in your own domestic setup. I would be looking to encourage you to make your own bacon, Jilly Smith, because it makes you uh, even more interesting to people. It, it would makes, make me a better person. It makes you a better... Making bacon is the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> it turns you into a better person and, and ultimately you do not have to adhere to those normal use-by-sell-by-date scenarios. You will just make something that keeps on getting better and that's self-reflective. It's that time of year when the Jane Grigson Trust Award crowns the latest new find in food writing in memory of one of Britain's best-loved culinary scribes. Trustee and Judge Geraldine Holt explained what the Trust is looking for and why the runners and riders must be commissioned by a publisher. So many people, understandably, would like to write a cookery book or a book about food. And so if we opened it, even, and that people have to be living in Britain, to all those people, we would be inundated. So because this was launched by Sally Holloway, who is an ex-publisher, she knew that it was really important that actually whatever someone had devised had passed the first hurdle, yeah. which it was the stamp of approval to, to get a contract with yeah. a publisher. What, what does the trust actually offer them? What does the well, award offer them? The, the award for the winner offers a cheque for £2,000, uh, which is intended to help them do further research, to just take some time off go into a writer's retreat and get down to the actual scribbling or travel around and do the research. Um, for example, last year's winner, Angela Cutton, has used it so brilliantly to consult people all over the world. Um, I remember she got on to Ken Hom, and he could tell her so much about China. Um, and now that I've read her book, because it's just been launched... Um, and she was on the podcast a couple of weeks back. The book is, is so much more than the entry she put in a year ago. He didn't know it at the time, but Dan Saladino, one of three shortlisted authors, would win that evening for his book in progress, The Ark of Taste, along with food blogger and literature lecturer Ellie McCausland. I asked Dan why, after 13 years of presenting Radio 4's The Food Programme, he wanted to write a book. Um, I, when I had the conversation with the publisher uh, and she asked that same question, I said because I felt that uh, after all these years I had something to say. So uh, a lot of accumulated knowledge and I'd started to make connections in my mind between different stories that I'd covered that I hadn't seen at the time connected and linked, uh, but they, they are. Uh, in the news agenda as well, that building and building were stories of biodiversity loss, of homogenisation of culture of things that were disappearing, of climate change. And I thought that so much of this could be told through the lens of food, which is why I felt that it was time for me to switch from radio for a period of time and start to write a book. Yeah, I mean, the food programme is also about us through the lens of food. Um, the Ark of Taste tells that story about who we are. It's a grassroots catalogue where people around the world in remote parts of the world that I would never ever be able to reach have logged a food that they feel is in danger and worth saving and I've taken a selection of stories and through that I've told the story not just of that food but I've used that food as a lens on the world and our relationship with food and importantly how that relationship 
is changing and has changed in particularly in recent decades yeah so um, it's very much about specific stories of foods and ingredients ranging from wild foods to cheeses to drinks um, to meat to fish and each one has a location a, a particular food and people as well who are involved in trying to save that food so Geraldine talked about what the, the money could be used for would you go on a, on a retreat where would you where do you write um, I, I write at home and um, I am surrounded by books at home, which is which is helpful. I have been writing on the road as well, so whenever I am, I just have to, you know, whether it's on trains or in libraries or, um, you know, mostly at home. But um, I think it's the most, just to say, it's probably the most difficult thing I've ever attempted to do. And the, um, I think this this uh, this award of being shortlisted is so important because it's such a solitary exhausting process so for somebody to pop up very early on in the life of a book and a first book has been so enormously encouraging and helpful now pop-ups have arguably been one of the most important movements in the restaurant world over the last 10 years giving young chefs the opportunity to test their skills out for limited risk but michael watt former head chef at brighton destination restaurant 64 degrees has taken it to the next level he's gone nomadic taking his syndicate kitchen into bars and barns and the kitchens of his chef mates to host a new style of gastro event where punters and food producers share tables and even plates. As he prepared for his zero-waste event skint for the Brighton Festival in May, he told me why he ran away to set up his own culinary circus. I want to bring people together. That's why I started cooking and it's what I want to do going forward. If I were to do this in a formal restaurant sitting where you would book a table anytime between six and nine, it just wouldn't work. You have to have people sitting down at the same time. You have to have people um, coming slightly out of their comfort zone. So what are you having then for 20 for quid? 20, for 20 quid. So in order to still make money and, uh, and give people a full experience, we've had to be really, uh, really creative. So uh, we bought in a load of pig heads um, my ethos and philosophy on meat is an animal died, respect it, eat everything, put as little in the bin as possible. And that includes with heads, feet, the, the lot. Uh, so we got some pig heads in, which are incredibly uh, inexpensive. Uh, we've cooked them down, uh, and then with the stock, we've got the first course, which is uh, a little pig head, smoked pig head tea, uh, served with a, a sourdough, um, a dead sourdough cracker. So once you've fed the sourdough what you throw away turn into a cracker um, and then pickled figs on that which came from my garden um, then we have a little Alexander buds it's a herb that grows uh, on, on the seafront here in Sussex uh, topped with some uh, kimchi made from wild onions so that dish cost zero pounds um, and then topped with the uh, ears from the pig head just crispy fried uh, and then the main course we have um, the, the main bit the pig's heads picked down and then we've battered that using um, beer from the drip tray here at Silo um, there's nothing wrong with drip tray beer it's, you're not going to drink it but it's still an amazing product um, if you're using amazing beer so we made a beer batter with that and then we're going to deep fry that and then serve it with some over pickled pickles um, and then a few desserts then uh, fig leaf from my fig tree in the garden as well uh, and pumpkin seed curd with uh, some rose and strawberry jam that I made back in July 
and then a chocolate ganache uh, for the main dessert that's been made with water and uh, rich and enriched with milk powder uh, fraction of the cost of using cream and butter and then finally to finish off a load of uh, we made some uh, apple juice here um, for uh, a dish and then obviously we had all the apple pulp so I cooked the apple pulp with uh, whey and caramelised that and then set that as a little pat de fruit. so you've got caramelised apple pat de fruit made from the pulp from making apple juice and it is an experience. You're, yes, yeah. you know, they're not coming just to sit down opposite their partner or whatever and talk about their day. They're coming to share that table and the experience, and that's the point, isn't it? It, it is. It is. I, I worked with uh, comedians. Um, I'm do. I'm doing skint during the Brighton Festival. Uh, so same thing. Twenty quid, Bright, Brighton Fringe Festival. I'm in talks of going to Edinburgh with it, and we're going to do it with a comedian, and he's going to travel around. He's we're going to work around his. Edinburgh comedy show and it's, it's exactly that it's, I don't want to do anything alone yeah. um, I'm not interested in being the front uh, face of what I'm doing I want to do it arm in arm with people who I want to spend time with mm-hmm. and that goes from diner all the way to, to, to the other end of the spectrum Even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Now, we love the stories of small producers here at Delicious and particularly transformation tales of people who swap the high life for a happier life. For Susanna Perez, ill health led to a life-changing decision to swap the boardroom culture for starter cultures as she developed her fermented milk using the kefir grains of her childhood. I found her cuddling the calves at Cowdray Park in the heart of the South Downs and discovered why this is her happy place. Oh, this, uh, this uh, cow is licking my, my whole hand and my fingers. <laughs> They're so lovely. I just love cows. I love cow's milk. I think it's uh, fantastic, all the proteins, they have all the calcium, it's very good as well, meal for you. So you grew up in, in rural Spain, near Barcelona, and then you became a finance analyst. Yes, yes, and I did um, uh, 20 years of that, <laughs> travelling around in Barcelona, London, Holland, and then I settled in here in, in Chichester with my husband, having two children, and I thought, 
you know what, I really want to start doing something healthier. Yeah. You know, all these numbers as a finance analyst, I think yeah. I have had enough of that. And you did become ill. Now, we can't make any claims that the kefir yes, actually made you better. But exactly. But 15 years ago, I got very ill. I had precancer cells and also a type of type 2 insulin resistance. And at that time, I wasn't drinking the kefir. So I called my dad and I said, I think I need some help here. Please send me some grains. And I started back into track, into having kefir. Um, and yes, um, my health recovered. I have now two lovely children. And I'm so happy that I can be making this fermented milk full of probiotics and um, um, healthy stuff for everybody. And some doctors say that it is the fermentation, it's the reaction with the gut, it's the, the stimulation the of the microbiome. Yes, yes, it's all about the microbiome, it's to have a balance. Mm. So sometimes we, we have uh, the good bacteria, but the good bacteria, if you don't feed them, they end up disappearing or you get stressed through life and then you only have bad bacteria. Yeah. And all of this is linked to give you lots of diseases. So it has been proved scientifically that we need all these good bacteria and the symbiotic yeast, healthy and beneficial yeast, with lots of lactobacillus and other bacteria that they are in kefir yeah. for us to feel better. And there is also a link now with um, the mind. So your gut and the mind is linked. So you have uh, known as the second second brain, isn't it? So yeah. you ended up at Cowdray Estate, which is it's very famous for its polo, but it's becoming well known as a well-being centre. So this is like a, a perfect home from home for you, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. For me, once I discovered this place and I came to uh, to visit them and to meet them, I just felt in my way back home. I thought. I think I found my place. I hope they want me to be making my kefir there as well. So you're using the milk from not these little ones here, no. but their moms <laughs> yeah. um, just around the corner. And they'll all be going out to play And they're together. so happy. I met them as well before I decided to, to do the fermented milk here. And I couldn't be more, more uh, lucky, really, to find this place. Oh, this guy is completely eating my, my jacket. <laughs> And staying with happy places, Will Davenport doesn't even need to leave home to make his award-winning Davenport wines in the East Sussex High Weald. Shortlisted for a Delicious Produce Award in 2017, he told me what it took to win his latest prize, the Amarin Sustainability Award. It's an award to recognise the, 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 the fact that we consider environmental sustainability in every aspect of the making wine and wine wine is potentially quite a a big problem for the environment because a lot of chemicals used in the vineyard it's very energy um, high in energy use a lot of wineries use a lot of water Um, and so we've decided right from the beginning that we would try and um, lead the way maybe in 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 how you can make wine without having to have a huge impact on the environment um, we're not the only people doing it, mm-hmm. but um, as a small producer, obviously, we're not going to make a huge difference to uh, the global climate change. It's one of the few organic wines in the area. Yeah, there are organic wines in England is a growing thing, very slow growing thing. Mm-hmm. I think there are now about 20 organic vineyards in, in the UK um, and probably about four that are commercial sized vineyards that are making yeah. wine that you can buy outside of the vineyard gate. Um, and and we've been doing it. We went organic in 2000, and when we went organic, I think there were only two other organic vineyards around. Yeah. Um, and it's quite nice to see that other people are sort of watching what we're doing and maybe going, oh yeah, we could do that. And 
Um, not saying we're, we're, the, we're, we're showing everybody else what to do. They're not copying us, but they may have their own ideas. But um, if, for me, it's nice to sort of to, to do something that other people look at and think about, and it makes people think about stuff. Yeah. So how do you fertilise the land then? We buy green waste compost from the council um, as in enormous quantities. I mean, 400 tonnes of compost a year. And we use chicken manure. And, um, and we grow our own um, plants that we can then um, make into like a, a, a liquid compost and spray it on the vine. So we mm-hmm. grow um, nettles, which are quite easy to grow, and um, comfrey, which has a very high potassium content. So we can then make our own liquid feeds for the vines off those. Mm-hmm. And um, we also use seaweed. Um, yeah, and it's, it's, a, it's, it's a good way to do it because all of those things don't just provide the nutrients for the vines but they feed all the soil bacteria and the earthworms as well so you end up with a very very vibrant sort of uh, biosystem in the in the vineyard and uh, if you just use chemical fertilizers you're basically only feeding the vines and everything else has got to sort of fend for themselves yeah and, uh, yeah Impact in terms of uh, cars coming up this very small lane for your workers to arrive. <laughs> Presumably they're local, are they? Yep, yep, yep. We employ local people. We've got I've got um, three guys working for me full time at the moment, and we use students from um, Plumpton College who come and do part time work when we can get them, mm-hmm. and it's part of their sort of work experience while they're studying grape growing or winemaking at college. Um, and I like to think that. They learn as much from us as they do from being at college all the time. And, um, yeah, so it's, it's, it's nice. You have local people who work for you. And we, we, we still employ local pickers, who, people, anyone who wants to come picking, who lives around here, get in touch. Because um, <laughs> we've got a team of about 20 pickers now who, who come, sort of some people, are, are, people drop their kids at school and then come picking for the day and then go pick the kids up afterwards and other people, retired people. All sorts, and uh, and is that a, is that a um, a conscious decision to use local people? Uh, is that a, a, a provision against Brexit? Is it? What's the thinking behind it? No, we've always used local people, so it's nothing to do with Brexit at all. It, it, it's um, it started off with me thinking if we employ local people, especially pickers, they end up sort of spreading the word about us in the local area. Um, if you employ Eastern European people to pick your grapes, then you might get very efficient people who pick your grapes very fast, but it's not as much fun. Um, people, the, the people who pick for us it come, mostly come because they just enjoy it, and it's a day out, and um, you know they work hard, but it, that, that they all know each other, mostly know each other, and um, by the end of picking, there's quite a good team. They're a very bonded sort of team of people, and they love it, and, uh, and it's more fun for me to work with people who are enjoying what they do. And finally, Sophie from the food team has been rummaging around in the larder for this month's top tip with an old favourite. Uh, so we've got a new feature um, where we take a classic store-covered ingredient and use it in ways that you haven't really thought about before. So when we first did it, it was miso and how you can turn it into really delicious dressing for roasted vegetables. But this one we've got marmite and we're using it on toast, as you would expect, but when we whiz it up and put it all over a macaroni cheese... And it's so like sweet, savoury, everything you want, Moorish macaroni cheese. Thanks for listening to The Delicious Podcast. You can keep up with all the backgrounds to the stories by using the hashtag The Delicious Podcast. And I'll be back next week to take you off the beaten track to Thailand with delicious columnist and Thai food writer Kay plunkett Og. I'll see you then.
A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 